Now, would you turn in your Bibles, please, to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2, 1 Timothy chapter 2, and uh, we'll read from verse 8, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8. I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works, that a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So this morning in our studies on the church, I want to turn our attention to a controversial but nevertheless important subject, the role of women uh, in the church. Controversial only in the last 40 years, because for almost 2,000 years of the church's history, there was no controversy at all. In society, we have seen dramatic changes uh, with the rise of the suffragettes who won the right for women to vote in 1918. And then with the passing of the Sex Discrimination Act in 1976 with the good and legitimate principle of equal pay for equal work. All professions at last have opened the doors to women and the proverbial uh, glass ceiling continues uh, to be shattered as women demonstrate that they are as able and as capable as their male colleagues. And all of that, of course, is positive, right and acceptable in a society that prides itself on justice and uh, and social fairness. However, in these days of equal opportunities, to many, the church is lagging behind the world and opening the doors to women. And to many, uh, the ministry is the last bastion of male privilege that needs to be taken and conquered in the name of equality. And so there's been this vigorous campaign in and outside the church pressing for the ordination of women. And many churches have given way to that pressure. And even in conservative evangelical circles, women preachers are knocking at the door. 30 or 40 years ago, uh, that would have been unthinkable unthinkable, but in many denominations it has already become uh, institutionalized and accepted. And the issue increasingly in conservative circles, conservative evangelical circles, is being relegated to the um, realm of the unimportant, of the secondary, of things that just happen to divide Christians, like head coverings, like Bible versions, like ecclesiastical structures. But you see, it's not just about the role of women. There are deeper issues at stake. And the deeper issue is the inspiration, the authority, and the perspicuity of Scripture. If the Bible, as our Constitution in Balamina Baptist says, is our final authority in all matters of faith and practice, then we have an obligation 
not to be governed on the one hand by the changing trends in society or on the other hand the traditions of men but by the word of God. And when it comes to this issue, Scripture alone must be our guide. So what does the Bible teach about the role of women in the church? Well, first of all, the Bible has a very high view of women. Notice the equality between men and women. The Bible teaches total equality uh, between men and women in three areas, creative dignity, natural depravity, and redemptive privilege. First of all, creative dignity. A careful examination of the creation account in Genesis 1 tells us that both men and women were created in the image of God and both equally reflect the image of God. So in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the uh, uh, and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps in the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Do you see that? Man there is used in its generic sense. It covers both men and women. Male and female, he created them. Both men and women bear the image of God and have the capacity to know and experience God. The man does not reflect any more of the image than the woman and the woman than the man. Both are equal in terms of their creative dignity. And the implications of that are immense. A woman as an image bearer of God must be treated with dignity and respect. She has a mind, a spirit, and a will, all of which means she should have honor. And it is the fact, a fact of history, that wherever the gospel has been preached and the Bible has come into a society, the status of woman has always been raised. Christabella Pankhurst of the suffragette movement was an evangelical Christian. It is false religions that degrade and devalue women and make them walk so many steps behind their husbands and treat them uh, as something uh, that exists in between uh, an animal and a servant. Men and women are equal in terms of their creative dignity. Secondly, they're equal in terms of their natural depravity. In the early chapters of Romans, Paul uh, in dealing with the depravity of mankind and the universality of sin, makes no sexual distinction between men and women. Man is not more sinful than woman, nor woman than man. Both are totally depraved. Romans 3.23 is comprehensive, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Incidentally, that word, or that phrase, total depravity, does not mean that man and women, of course, are, are as bad as they could be. That's not what theologians mean when they talk about total depravity. They mean rather that sin has affected every part of him. Our minds, our wills, our affections, every part of us has been affected and distorted by sin. And that includes women as well as men. So men and women are equal in terms of their creative dignity, their natural depravity, and then thirdly, in terms of their redemptive privilege. 
The third area of absolute equality between men and women is in the whole area of redemption. To quote a very famous verse that is used to um, sort of justify feminism on many occasions is Galatians 3, 28 and 29. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female for all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now, Paul is not teaching that all our sexual distinctiveness are, uh, is ended in Christ Jesus. That uh, in some spiritual um, way you're neutered by the gospel. A careful reading of the verse shows us that that cannot be the case because our ethnic and uh, uh, racial differences do not end with the gospel. Jews are still Jews and Greeks are still Greeks. Our occupation, our social standing doesn't change at conversion. Slaves are still slaves and uh, some are still free. No, men are still men and women are still women. But in terms of redemption, nationality, occupation, and gender are as irrelevant as far as our standing before God is concerned. To quote verse 29, we are all Abraham's offspring. We believe in the priesthood of all believers, including men and women. Women are priests. Uh, today uh, in the gospel. A husband does not need to mediate on behalf of his wife or a slave owner on behalf of a slave or a Jew on behalf of a Gentile. All have the same redemptive privilege. So um, God is equally accessible to all. He is the father of us all. So in terms of creative dignity, natural depravity, and redemptive privilege, there is no sexual distinction between men and women. So we've looked at the equality between men and women. The second thing I want you to notice is the authority that God entrusts to man. Now when we speak about authority, we need to distinguish between the family, society, and the church. Since the morn this morning we are considering the role of women in the church, it's authority in the church that I want to focus upon leadership in the family and leadership in society or for uh, another study. Uh, it's authority in the church that we want to concentrate on. I hope that's clear. Now, when we look at the Old Testament, we see clearly that the leadership of the people of God was patriarchal. God is described as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not the God of Sarah, Rebecca, or Rachel. Now, he was the God of Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel. But in terms of authority, the authority lay with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was the 12 sons of Jacob who became the 12 tribes of Israel. Yet we know that he had daughters as well. Moses delegated his authority to seven elders, and when he numbered Israel, only men over 20 who were able to serve in the army were counted. Prophets, priests, and kings were almost always exclusively male, and it was only at times of spiritual and moral decadence and declension that women rose to positions of leadership. Indeed, in Isaiah chapter 3, 
verses 11 and 12, uh, we are told that woman in leadership among the people of God is a mark of judgment. Woe to the wicked! It shall be ill with him, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. My people, infants are their oppressors, and rulers rule over them, and women, sorry, rule over them. The leadership of women among the people of God was seen as a mark of spiritual decline. Now, in the Old Testament, there are a few notable exceptions, in particular Deborah. However, it's interesting to note that Deborah did not lead when invasion threatened. She delegated that authority, or more accurately, the Lord delegated that authority through her to men. In her song of triumph in Judges chapter 5, she begins by praising God that the princes took the leadership in Israel. Bless the Lord, she says, that men eventually rose to the task and led the people of God. It was the failure and weakness of the men that thrust Deborah reluctantly into this position. To quote John Calvin in his commentary on 1 Timothy 2, the portion that we read together, he says, If anyone challenges his ruling by citing the case of Deborah and of other women of whom we are told that God at one time appointed them to govern the people, the obvious answer is that God's extraordinary acts do not annul the ordinary rules by which he wishes to be bound. So that was leadership among the people of God in the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Does freedom in Christ include emancipation for women in terms of opening the leadership, it's the church's leadership, um, to them? Well, it's, it's surprising that Jesus, during his earthly ministry, says absolutely nothing on the subject. But there is one indisputable fact that Jesus chose 12 men to be his apostles. Now, Jesus gave a high place to women. In the Gospels, women often outshine the men in terms of their love and loyalty to Jesus. Remember, it was women who first uh, heard the news of the resurrection. But still, when it comes to the leadership of the church, Jesus chose 12 men to be his apostles. And arguments that speak of our Lord's concessions to current culture fail to take into into consideration the willingness of our Lord to confront and rebuke any practice that was simply based on culture and tradition. Could it be? Jesus, in choosing 12 men to be his apostles, was indicating that the patriarchal nature of the government among the people of God was to continue from the old to the new. Then we come to the epistles, and Paul is absolutely clear. Look at the verse 12, the portion that we read uh, together in 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. She is to remain quiet. Paul states it in black and white. Women are not to exercise authority over men. Now, what do you want me to do with that? Well, you have three choices. 
One, you could say that Paul is an old misogynist, a crusty bachelor who wants to keep women in their place. Well, my objection to that was it fails to appreciate the high uh, standing that Paul gives women in his epistles. He holds them in the highest esteem. And secondly, it violates the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. These are not simply the world, the words of a crusty old bachelor. These are the words of God. Secondly, you can argue, as some do, that Paul was simply accommodating himself to the cultural situation of the first century. Look, you women. I know you have identical rights as men, but we want to reach men for Christ. And so you need to sacrifice your rights in the meantime. And in 2,000 years, when society becomes more enlightened, things will have changed sufficiently, and we can open the doors of the uh, of eldership to you when these prehistoric ideas are put to bed. But notice carefully the text, verse 13. For, here's the reason he gives, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Now that's such a crucially important statement. When Paul argues for male leadership, he breaks through all the cultural sensitivities and present practices, and he looks back to creation itself that in the very order of creation that that authority was established for Adam was formed first. You get the same thing in 1 Corinthians 11, although in the context of, of the family. For man was not made for woman, but woman for man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. In the Hebrew mind, the firstborn or the first created had authority over later arrivals. Now, feminist theologians will come to this and they will say, but, but um, that subjection only came as a result of the fall in the punitive decree. Because God said to Eve, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. So in the gospel, that is reversed. We're going back to pre-fall days to be freedom from sin. And so that ought to be removed. But Paul's argument is not from the fall. It's from creation itself. You get the point. Paul's reason for not permitting a woman to teach and have authority over a man is not based on culture but creation. Now, hermeneutics is the science by which we interpret and understand the Bible. It's a theological subject. It's, it's looking at the principles of interpretation, that you have to set things in their context. You have to understand the type of literature it is. You have to understand uh, the culture of the day and so on. And, um, and you have to turn hermeneutics on its head to make 1 Timothy 2 not mean what it plainly uh, says. And let me warn you that the same hermeneutic that is used and applied to justify women in ministry is the same hermeneutic that's used to justify homosexuality. But it's simply based on culture. You see, 
What's at stake is the perspicuity of Scripture. Is Scripture sufficiently clear on this issue? The Diver's Statement on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, published in 1989, refers to this as hermeneutical oddities devised to reinterpret the plain meaning of biblical text. For, here's the reason, for Adam was formed first. The third part, uh, point that we need to, to make about 1 Timothy 2 uh, is that context is significant. Remember, chapter divisions are artificial. They were added at a much later date. Now, how does chapter 3 begin? The saying is trustworthy if anyone aspires to the office of overseer or elder, he desires a noble task. And then Paul sets out the qualifications for elder. Now, when you compare the qualifications of elder with that of deacon, the thing that distinguishes the elder is his ability to teach, he's apt to teach, and he exercises authority in the church. So the things that mark out an elder are teaching and exercising authority. And in verse 12, Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. That teaching and authority, the distinctive qualifications for eldership, are the thing that he forbids. So the thing that he's forbidding is eldership. Elders, and by implication pastors, for remember pastors were elders, are male. That is the way God has decreed it and the way that God has ordered it. Because a woman may be spiritually, intellectually, and theologically qualified, and because she may have the ability to do so, does not mean that she should. The, the New Testament is very clear that eldership is male, teaching is male, and exercising authority is male. She was not created for that purpose. But some object and say, God has blessed the ministry of woman. Well, that is pragmatism. And pragmatism is not a guide when it comes to biblical principle. Moses may strike the rock, the water may come forth, and the people may be refreshed, and all the time Moses might be sinning, and that would be, and that is the sin that keeps him out of the promised land. There's a more fundamental question that we need to ask than does it work? And that question uh, is, is it right and is it biblical? And it seems to me absolutely clear that eldership is male. And that brings us to our third point this morning, the ministry entrusted by God to women. So we've looked at the equality between men and women. We've looked at the authority uh, that God has given to men uh, over women and then the ministry entrusted by God to women. When God created man, he said in Genesis 2.18, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. On each day of creation, when God created, he said, or we read, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good. And when he created man, he said, it is not good. It is not good for man to be alone. And his solution to the loneliness of man was the creation of of women, and he made a helper, 
uh, fit for him. Two words in Hebrew, help and match. Help and match. Gordon Wenham translates it, a helper matching for him. Now, when we read the word helper, we uh, immediately read into that subordination. A helper helps somebody who is more important than themselves. But not in Hebrew. That was uh, the word was used of God in Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. It in no way implies inferiority at, at all. That she is there to help him and to match him. Uh, uh, she complements him. She completes him. That she is a helper that completes him uh, as a man. God has created men and women differently. And they complement each other perfectly. A journalist once asked the late uh, Dr. James Montgomery Boyce if he believed if uh, men were superior than women, to which he replied, men are better at being men and women are better at being women. God created women not to serve man, but to help him, to complete him, to complement him. In other words, man needs woman that he is incomplete without her. She matches him. She complements him. It's like two pieces of a jigsaw that are needed to make up the full picture. You know that Gail was unwell for um, uh, the last three or four weeks. She she had food poisoning and then she had um, uh, COVID. She tested positive for COVID. And she got a bit down and a bit delirious. And uh, she said, I sent for the boys to tell them uh, not to object if you remarry because you couldn't manage without a woman. And uh, I have to confess that's true. <laughs> Not that I w anybody would have me, but I, I would find it difficult to manage uh, without her. God has given different roles to men and women in marriage, but they complete and they complement each other. Now, what is true of marriage is true in the church. God has assigned different roles to men and women, but both are needed in the church. And that's what we call, theologically, complementarianism. That women uh, complement men. That men and women need each other in the church as well as in the home. So let's fin finish on a positive note then. What can women do in the church? First of all, they can... Uh, read scripture and they, they can pray. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 5, if a woman pray or prophesy with her head uncovered. Now whatever the head covering means, we'll come on to that maybe when I'm leaving, but we'll, 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 we'll come into that in the future. But, but um, whatever the head covering means, she was allowed to pray and she was allowed to prophesy. And if prophecy has its fulfillment in the reading of Scripture, she is allowed to pray publicly and read the Scriptures. In open times of prayer, at the prayer meeting or around the Lord's table, it's perfectly appropriate for women to pray and read the Scriptures. Remember, 1 Corinthians 11 is the context uh, of the Lord's table. 
Now, some object and say, well, what about 1 Timothy 2, verse 12? She is to remain silent. Or 1 Corinthians 14, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. Does that mean that women are not allowed to speak? I went to a prayer meeting, a pre-church prayer meeting on one occasion. Myself and the pastor were there. And six women, he asked me to open in prayer. I opened in prayer. We sat in 20 minutes in silence because he taught that women can't pray and or shouldn't pray and uh, and then he closed in prayer and it seems ridiculous to me that Paul the the man with this massive theological intellect never mind the fact that he was writing under the inspiration of the spirit would contradict himself between 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Corinthians 14. When he says women should remain silent, he cannot mean absolute silence if he has already said if a woman prayer prophesy with her head uncovered. Now, there are two Greek words for silence. One is much stronger than the other. One was used of Jesus when he silenced the Sadducees. He, he, he muzzled them. They had nothing to say. But the other word is less strong, and that's the word that's used in 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 14. It means not to verbally dominate or take over. So that's the first thing. She can pray and read the Scriptures. Secondly, she can teach. The New Testament not only permits a woman to pray, it permits a woman to teach. uh, But the point is that the pupils are clearly defined. She can teach uh, other women. Uh, Titus 2, you remember we looked at that on uh, lockdown. Titus 2 and verse 3. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderous or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. So she can teach other women. Uh, Gail, as you know, is the Baptist Women's Director and she gets fed up with women's meetings that she calls uh, pink and fluffy, as if women have no intelligence, can't grasp uh, theological truth and biblical um, uh, doctrine, and so they are uh, hived off in a corner uh, to um, do something extremely trivial. I think that's demeaning and degrading of women. So they can teach other women. They can teach children. Uh, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 15 to Timothy, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings that are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Who did he hear that from? 1 Timothy 1 and verse 5, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and then in your mother Eunice, and now I am persuaded dwells in you also. You know, John Newton, we often emphasize in his testimony that he was a a rogue, a slave uh, trader who was in total rebellion against God and and, uh, was then converted dramatically off the coast of Donegal after his ship uh, went aground. But 
But John Newton's mother was a, a godly Christian. She died at 27 when he was 11, but she was a godly Christian. And she says, when, uh, John Newton says, when, when she, he was four, he could read as well as when he wrote his biography. And he could repeat all the questions, all the answers to the questions in the shorter catechism with scriptural proof. He says, those impressions never left me. I could never escape from them. Again and again they came back to me, even in his wild days. Women can exercise an enormous influence over children. So uh, teaching Sunday school, teaching in the holiday Bible club, um, taking children's talks if we had them in church, perfectly acceptable. So she can teach other women, she can teach children, she can teach other men. Remember 1 Timothy 2 and verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Teaching and authority are distinctive functions of eldership. But in other contexts, it seems perfectly appropriate for for me, to me, for women to teach men. Do you remember in uh, Acts 18, Apollos comes to Ephesus to preach? He's very eloquent, but there are just a few defective things in his theology. And Priscilla and Aquila invite him back for supper, and they teach him the Word of God more accurately. And Priscilla Incidentally, because she's named first, seems to be the dominant one in, in that marriage. And, um, and here she's exercising a teaching ministry to a man. So teaching men is perfectly acceptable in a private context, in a college context, even in an adult Sunday school context. That's acceptable. So you, she can teach um, older women, children, and other men in the right con uh, context. Then she can evangelize. Do you remember in John 4, the woman of Samaria went back to her village and said, Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could he be the Christ? And we're told in verse 39, Many Samaritans from that town believed because of the woman's testimony that she engaged in evangelism. She told the men and the women, and they came out to meet Jesus for themselves. Now, of course, we need to be careful. You know, this old thing that you flirt to convert, which is practiced by some of the cults, you know, that you send the most attractive young girls out to do the street evangelism, and they particularly target the young men. You need to be very, very careful about that kind of thing. But evangelism, perfectly appropriate. A woman can, third, uh, fourthly, serve. Fifthly, serve. Now, the word deacon means servant. It, it is uh, serve in its verb form. So just turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 11. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11. Remember, we have the qualifications for elders, then the qualifications for deacons, and then in verse 11, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Now, that word wife is simply the word for woman. 
likewise the woman uh, should be. And commentators argue that because Paul is giving qualifications for elders, and he doesn't mention the elders' wives, for deacons, and then this, this third group, wives, that he's actually referring to an office for women in the church. So that he has uh, elders, qualifications, deacons, qualifications, and then the women, qualifications. And that has led many to conclude that that is the office of deaconess. Now, the word is not used, and I should say, uh, um, to balance the argument, is that the, the word wife is never used in the New Testament. It's always the word woman. Now, if you turn back to, to Romans uh, uh, chapter 13, Romans chapter 13, sorry, Romans chapter 16, Romans chapter 16 and verse 1, Romans chapter 16 and verse 1, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant, that's the word deacon, okay, a servant of the church in St. Crea. Now, I should say that, that the word servant normally has a masculine and a feminine uh, description. So it's used of a woman, it's in its feminine form, and it's used uh, of a man, it's in its masculine form. But here, it's in its masculine form. And that has led many to speculate that Phoebe was actually a deacon in the church. And I think there's a good argument for that. Um, that Phoebe actually served as a deacon. And added to that, when the qualifications are given in First Timothy 3, for the women, it seems that there was an office uh, uh, in the church. The only thing is, I, I think we have to be careful because it could be that Paul is giving a backhanded compliment and saying that Phoebe is as good as any man in the service that she renders. That could be the case, but it's unusual in Greek. It's breaking every Greek rule to refer to her as a deacon in that masculine form. So is it possible to have female deacons? Well, I wouldn't go to the stake for that. I wouldn't be burnt at the stake for that. I think it's possible. There is a, a legitimate, biblical, exegetical argument for that. But, and here's where I stand, when it comes to the office of eldership, the Bible is absolutely clear that elders pastors, ministers of the gospel are men. I, I think to, to argue around that, you're turning the plain meaning of Scripture on its head. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man for Adam was formed first. I've probably satisfied nobody this morning, but anyway, thank you for your patience. Amen.